On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Great take by Davy Tweed again at the front. I tell you, there are younger men who played for Ireland in the second row, but few better at this stage. I'm not here to take away from the fact that he may have been a good rugby player or he may have been um, an outspoken politician, but I want them not to forget about the fact that he is also a paedophile. No peace until he's dead. That's the title of a new book by Amanda Brown. He got some level of satisfaction out of the control and the terror that he created in the house. She's talking about her stepfather, Davy Tweed, the former Ireland and Ulster rugby player and political activist. You know, he put across this image of being a real family man um, in terms of the rugby. He wanted to create this image of himself as being this perfect family man to hide exactly what was going on in the house. In 2012, he was convicted of child sex offences. The jury found him guilty of 13 counts of indecent assault, gross indecency with a child and inciting gross indecency with a child. But his conviction was quashed in 2016. The judgment was based on bad character evidence. He has he's maintained his innocence in respect of these charges and he now wants to get on with his life. Tweed died in a motorcycle accident in 2021. Amanda Brown has spoken out to make sure that David Tweed's abuse of his wife and his family, including the sexual abuse of her, is never forgotten. That's exactly who he was to me, a violent paedophile. In this episode of the Indo-Daily, Amanda joins me in the studio. Amanda, we've just met. Um, Your story is one I've read, but a lot of people will not recognize the name Amanda Brown. Could you you tell us who you are? Um, Normally people ask me to explain who Davy Tweed is, Um, you know, in these kind of questions. But um, I guess me, Amanda Brown, I am the stepdaughter of Davy Tweed. Um, or I was the stepdaughter of David Tweed. Um, and he is the person who is responsible for 
the majority of my childhood trauma. You've written a book. I was very struck by something I read in the book and that I felt, and I mean this, I don't mean this as in, in any way but a compliment, that I'd read it a thousand times before. Because in many ways, Davy Tweed is a stereotype. He is what you expect or was what you expect these kind of people to be. It, it seems so... He seemed to have, he comes across as having no redeeming qualities. But let's talk about that public Davy Tweed there, the rugby player, the political activist, the orange man, the hero for many people in his circle. He had groups of friends and drinking buddies to the end. I mean, it complicates the story, but, but, but who was that public Davy Tweed? Well, the public Davy Tweed, um, he was very charming. He was very charismatic. He was very forthright. And, you know, he liked to place himself in this position of standing for um, what he believed in and, you know, encouraging other people, you know, in terms of his political stance and the issues that were, he was a very prominent figure around the parades issues. And, you know, he wanted to lead the way, so to speak, for the smaller people as he would have seen them coming behind. And he was their hero, do you know, at that time. And I'd see him on the rugby pitch. Do you know, he was he was a hero to many people and a lot of my peers at the time as well. He would have been a hero to my peers and indeed a hero to some of his family members too in relation to, do you know, his, his rugby as well, you know, the sporting hero. So... When he was, when you seen him out and around in public, he was a completely different person to the person he was at home. Um, he was very charismatic and outgoing and charming, and you know he would have came across as the the most loving, doting father ever. And he would, you know, he put across this image of being a real family man um, in terms of the rugby as well. Do you know, he would make sure that my mum was waiting at the edge of the pitch for him with, you know, one of my younger sisters in her arms so he could then carry them off. Do you know, the, the pitch, he wanted to create this image of himself as being this perfect family man to hide exactly what was going on in the house. Unlike so many people of his ilk, he was completely different behind closed doors. And he was completely different from the, from the get-go. Yeah, very early on anyway, yeah. In terms of the physical abuse that my mum experienced, I wouldn't have seen that at the very early stages. Um, it's strange looking back on it because when I was growing up within that, it wasn't, I didn't know any different, you know, and it's not until I'm, I'm older and looking back and understand. You know, I can look back and my mum would have had marks maybe on her face or, you know, on her hands, wrists, throat, whatever, and... We never asked any questions. It was almost as if we knew not to ask anything. And I never really understood, you know, the the impact of that until I have had a son of my own who, if I have a slight mark on my hand or anything, he's like, oh, what happened, mummy? Where did that come from? And it's like, looking back, there was just that knowing of where it came from, but not asking because, you know, you knew better. The book, and I mean from the beginning, he violently abused your mother constantly and in extreme form for years and years and years. 
you know, it's it's so hard to get your head round why this man, when he when he crossed the the threshold of the door at night, a six foot six man decided to violently abuse his wife, who was tiny in comparison to him for years. I don't I don't understand that. Who did he think he was himself? Like, was he aware of this? He enjoyed being this public David Tweet, but did he also enjoy being this private, violent David Tweet? I believe he did. Like, I believe he got some level of satisfaction out of the control and the terror that he created in the house. Amanda, there are some indications from the book that people outside of your house, including some family members, would have been aware, not only just because of marks and bruising, but would have been witnesses to physical assault. I just wonder, and we need to be fair to David Tweed's family, and we need to be fair to the people who lived around you. But did you think that people, local people and politicians and his mates knew who he really was? I believe they did. I mean, particularly in relation to the politics. Um, like, he, he was in court twice for the same thing. Do you know, on two separate occasions, in 2009 and then again in 2011, he was in court for child sex abuse charges. So they knew exactly what he was. Um, and in that second court case, he himself admitted it was his legal team who decided to bring in the, the bad character clause and they wanted to discuss his abuse of my mother in the context of that court case. So they were aware of it. I don't believe that any of them weren't aware of it. They just wanted to conveniently ignore that side of him because it didn't suit their narrative to to have this person that was who he was amongst them. Often people naively ask in relation to cases like your mother's case, well, why didn't she just leave? Why didn't she just run away? But having read your book, I could never, I could never really see the opportunity for her to get away. She seemed to have no escape route. She seemed to do the only thing that she could do, which was seemed to be absorbed as much punishment and I suppose she thought she was protecting yourselves in, in, in those actions. But how did she eventually get away? Um, well, she eventually got away because of the the first court case. And, you know, she was told, and I believe I've, I've mentioned that in the book as well, that social services arrived and just said, you need to put him out of your house. Um, how that was handled at the time as well, I think was incredibly unfair on my mum, given that they were aware of how violent he was. But they left her to confront him and tell him that he had to leave the house. And it wasn't a case of, if you leave the house, we will help you find somewhere else to live. You know, we'll sort you and the children out. That's fine. You know, we can get you out of that situation. It was, you have to tell him to leave the house or we will take your children. So a five foot two woman is forced to confront Mm -hmm. her abuser of many, many years, who was six foot six and an absolute violent lunatic Mm -hmm. without... The presence of of the of the uh, on the instructions of social services without any support. Yep, that's incredible. Yep, Amanda, I'm well out of my comfort zone here, and I think most people would be. So, I can only just ask. So, what happened? What happened to you? Um, I well, I was sexually abused by him. Um, from like my earliest clear memory is from when I was around eight years of age and you know when I say my earliest clear memory is because I believe that there were instances prior to that but because of the way 
trauma affects you. Um, I hadn't got a clear picture of some of those, you know, like a clear and full picture of some of those earlier memories. So the way I would describe remembering trauma or childhood trauma is like someone has taken multiple jigsaws and thrown them on the floor and taken away the boxes and you're left to piece together these pictures. So, you know, it's it's trying to pull together all of those little sort of like pictures and making them make sense when you're getting bits of bits of some memories muddled with others. You know, whenever I went to the police about it, that's I had to make sure that I had a clear memory. Would you have more clearer memories as time went on? As time went on, yes. There would have been other clearer memories would have would have come in. I I didn't want to like I know within the book I have gone into detail about one specific incident. And that is because that's what was reported in the first few days of court before the press ban was implemented. And I wanted to share it because I wanted people to understand exactly what he was doing, you know, behind closed doors. I can't tell a listener, I will tell a listener, having read about this, we're talking about something very, very, very serious and something very, very traumatic. And as much as I was traumatised by the incident, I was traumatised about what he how, about what he said. And because again, we've heard those words again and again and again from, from many characters like this. I mean, he, he told you he would be in trouble if you told. Yeah, yeah. Um, you hear often that they tell their victims that nobody will believe them. Um, but he didn't tell me that because I think he knew that I knew that my mum would believe me. I wasn't a storyteller as a child and he knew that my mum would believe me if I went to her. So instead of telling me that nobody would believe me, he told me that he would get into trouble, um, that he would go to jail for it and that my mum would end up begging in the street with my younger sister and also told me that my brother and I would end up in orphanages, um, you know, or children's homes and that we would be separated and on our own. So from a very early age, I felt the drive to protect my family and that is exactly how he kept my silence for so long. How did this come out? And who opened the floodgates? The floodgates were opened by another two people. Um, Well, primarily it was one, one brave person who, who spoke up initially and then another one followed and they had their own court case. And it was after that that questions were then being asked of myself. And it was my brother, actually, who had come over from from England and he sat directly opposite me and eyeballed me while he asked me had he ever um, laid a finger on me. And I couldn't, you know, it was just in that moment I couldn't lie. You know, I couldn't lie to my brother and... Was your brother supportive? Did he did he believe you? Uh, yeah, he did. But, you know, and how he reacted as well, and I understand it was his emotion, you know, he just got up because he was in disbelief, but not in disbelief in the way that he didn't want to believe me, but disbelief in that, you know, I think he felt a responsibility as a big brother, you know, and it, it upset him in that way. But the only thing I had asked him at that point was not to tell my mum, because again, I was still trying to protect my mum. 
In 2012, a jury found him guilty of 13 counts of indecent assault, gross indecency with a child and inciting gross indecency with a child. The one-time councillor from Clonavon Terrace in Ballymena was sentenced to eight years in prison. Amanda, you cast aside your right to anonymity in this case. Many people do that, many people don't do that. Why did you do that? I did it because I felt that people needed to hear about who he was. I would have spoken up at the time of the court case, but out of respect for my sisters, with them being his biological children, I didn't. They weren't ready for that. And it wasn't until he passed that they felt safe enough themselves, you know, to then, you know, for me to speak about it. But it was when the headlines started hitting and they were talking about this great sporting hero or, you know, they were just talking about how great a person he was, you know, rugby hero dies in car accident. And given the way Balamani is and it being quite a small town and they're very proud of, of people who do well, and rightly so, um, I was just frightened that they would create some memorial in Balamani um, of him. And I didn't want, knowing that I have family living there still, who have been deeply affected by Davy and, and what he has done, I didn't want any memorial in their hometown of this monster who has completely shattered their lives. Amanda, Davy Twee's defence barrister had a job to do and he, he did it to the best of his ability under the system and the rules as, 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 as they are. So I'm not criticising him in any way, shape or form. That's his job. He works the system as it was. However, you know, you are under interrogation about things which, traumatic things which happened to you beginning when you were eight, lasting to you were 15. That was very tough. It was incredibly challenging. Um, the court case in itself, in its entirety, was quite traumatic. Um, it was very emotionally charged. Um, mentally, it was very, very challenging to have someone try to make you out to be a liar when you're telling your truth and you know the person that is lying is, you know, within eye shot. You know, it's his defence barrister, I think, believed that he was an innocent man because Davy could be that convincing. Um, and still, you know, up to the day he died, he maintained his innocence. Um, even while he was in, in prison, he maintained his innocence. But I believe his defence barrister also believed him to be telling the truth and he believed us to be lying and he done his hardest. He, you know, he tried his hardest to to prove that we the, we were lying. But, you know, that didn't happen. You say how, we, how many people were involved in that prosecution? Two people. Two people. Yeah. Did you ever confront him as an adult? Did you ever see him in the street? Did you ever... I don't know what would, you know, it's very, very hard for people. Some people imagine that they would have tried to avoid this person all the time. Others would think, no, one, they would just get in the car and confront them on the street. What's the reality? Because of who he was and how volatile he was and how deeply violent he was, there was no desire to go chasing him down to, to confront him, you know, because I didn't know what would have happened to me if I had have confronted him. Now, he did arrive at my front door one time and that was the one and only time you know, he was asking me not to speak to the police about it um, and stood at my door and told me they couldn't lie about me and he was asking me initially not to go to the police and because I wasn't backing down, he then threatened me. 
Um, and my mum arrived very shortly after and, you know, not long after he had said to me that he couldn't lie about me, that my mum then confronted him in front of me about what he had done. And he turned around and goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I never touched her. And I just shouted over at him, you, you know, you just said that you couldn't lie about me. Um, and at that, he just got in his car and drove off. But he would spend time around Balamone. He seemed to know my... Um, I worked in Balamone at the time as well, and he seemed to know sort of like when I was finishing work or whatever, and he would always be driving past and glaring. Um, and it got to a point where he would be standing outside the pub opposite every time I was finishing work. It just filled me with anxiety whenever I was leaving work at the end of the day. You know, I just had that dread knowing that he was going to be out there and he was going to be glaring at me. And there was just one day I was out and I just had enough. I, I, I was just like, I can't take this anymore. So it was it was completely, it wasn't planned. It was just complete spur of the moment that I told the joke to the rest of my colleagues that were standing there and I pointed across to him. And as I told the punchline, I pointed and they started laughing and looked, looked around at him. And at that, he skulked back into the pub again and I, he's never never been able to look at me since then. Amanda, you get a call. David Tweed's dead. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that was like. Um, I didn't believe it. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't believe it. Um, I had asked, are you sure? Whenever I got the call and was told, I was like, are you, are you sure it's definitely him? Um, and they said, it was my brother actually who rang me and told me and he said he had it. You know, yeah, he had heard from reliable sources that it was Davy Tweed who had died. And I says, well, look, I'll believe it whenever I see it written in the press. And a couple of hours later was the first release of it. Um, I think it was Belfast Telegraph who released it and I had seen it on Facebook and I shared the story with my own comment, which was edit paedophile dies in motorbike accident. Despite the fact that he had been convicted, now that conviction was overturned on a technicality. He was he was he was given eight years to serve for and he he, he was later that he was found then effectively not guilty on the basis of a technicality regarding the treatment of bad character evidence. Free since October this year, David Tweed was told today why his convictions had been quashed. They included concerns about how certain evidence had been treated. The Lord Chief Justices said they had significant unease about the correctness of the verdict and accordingly were quashing it. So that's the situation. Nevertheless, nevertheless, and I acknowledge, as some politicians have said, as some legal, that effectively in the eyes of the law, as cruel as it sounds that Davy Tweed was not guilty. Nevertheless, somehow, in the press in the days after he died, he still seemed to be a rugby hero. And for some unionist politicians, they still see saw a need to pay tribute to him. That must have been devastating. It was, yeah. As, you know, considering that... My story was already out there and they were continuing to pay tribute to him. You know, I find it very offensive as a victim. Um, as his victim, I find it very offensive. But I also felt a need to keep speaking up about it because every victim was being let down. And what they were doing was standing and saying, we don't really care about the victims. You know, it was, it was proven that he was innocent, you know, through the, the eyes of the law. So that means he's innocent. And 
I mean, even if you, even if they believed that, it, it may have been more appropriate to simply not pay public tribute, to, to pay private tribute if they felt that was completely necessary. But for some reason, they went they went further than that. Now, obviously, we know Davy Tweed. Uh, there are there are many very there are many reports that he was a raging bigot. Obviously, he took part in the very controversial Harryville protests, which most the vast majority of unionists would have disowned as totally unacceptable and extreme. But I just I just am struck by why they felt a, a man which with huge question marks over his character, no matter what, they still felt the need to publicly uh, pay tribute. Why? And I I can't get my head around that. I, I won't understand it either. You know, it's even when they were faced with challenges around his character, they continued to pay tribute, really. It's- to sum up, one final comment in terms of David Tweed, you said he's just nothing more than a violent paedophile. That's it. Yeah, that that is it. That's exactly who he was to me, a violent paedophile. And I, I'm not here to take away from the fact that he may have been a good rugby player or he may have been um, an outspoken politician. Um, those are things that people will remember him for, but I want them not to forget about the fact that he is also a paedophile. The book is called No Peace Until He's Dead um, and that's available from when? It's in the shops now. Amanda Brown, thank you very much. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts.